Just as a reminder, in a few weeks, the children's stampede will be going forward. So when they go out, they'll be in the parking lot if they go out the wrong door. So just parents beware. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at the last two verses, verses 20 and 21. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, these are the final admonitions and commands to Timothy from Paul in this letter. This is the final installment in our series from 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6 that we call Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. We've talked about this, but this is my final opportunity. I've been burdened deeply as one of the shepherds here that as a church, we be spiritually prepared as possible for our move in a few weeks to the White Lane facility. Let me tell you the source of my own burden. God has provided so beautifully. He has led so very clearly. We've seen His kindness as a response to the faithfulness that we've attempted to show as a church to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And if He's provided so beautifully, and if He's led us so clearly then our assumption is that he is asking for a return on his investment. He's asking for faithfulness on our part, which has been the theme of this entire series in 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6. Our move will be wonderful. We'll enjoy the new facility with two and a half times the square footage we have now, but it won't be without challenges, and it will not be without attacks of the evil one along the way. We already know some of the challenges, the biggest one just walked out the door. Our, our children's ministry, we are committed to spreading the gospel of Christ to the little ones in our church, and we have prayed often that every one of them would come to faith. Our discipleship of children during children's church, which is happening right now during the main worship service, it will need more leaders. It does need more leaders. I know it's a sacrifice to provide that continuity for the kids, but The leaders devote one month to this, and thankfully for us, with our electronic media, everyone can still go back and make a habit of listening to what was preached that week. Our security team will need more helpers. Uh, Again, we live in a world that now churches have to have security so that we might worship in as much safety as possible. I know it's a sacrifice which enables the rest of us to worship in safety. We have such faithful security guys right now, they don't even know how to listen to me if it's not over the speaker out in the foyer. That's just what they do. So we could use more. We're anticipating that our small group ministry will almost immediately need more qualified leaders to commit to discipling a small group in your home as more hungry souls come through our doors. Our guest care team Our member care team will likely need bolstering. And yes, we are looking forward to two and a half times the space we have now, but that means we have to clean it too. And we have to maintain it. The point is, is that God is wonderfully providing this new facility for us, but this isn't just for us to enjoy. It's a tool that God expects us to use, to put to work. I have to say for me personally, I... I sort of used to think that by this time in my ministry, I might get to lean a little more on prior study and knowledge, maybe just a little. But frankly, my time in the Word and preparation for teaching all of you is more intense, more time-consuming, and more concentrated than ever before. All our pastoral staff, all of our elders, all of our deacons are feeling the weightiness of the trust that God is giving us as a church And so we've been talking for several months. We've wanted to prepare as best we can spiritually 
from 1 Timothy 4 through 6 on how to be prepared, what the faithful church is doing. And for the final time, let me give you the list of what the faithful church is doing. They're striving for excellence, understanding the gospel, leading by example, focusing the leadership, sanctifying the individuals, helping the vulnerable, discipling the women, evaluating the leaders, honoring the name, guarding the flock, exhorting to contentment, fighting the good fight, preaching the word, and giving in generosity. But this morning, our final installment, Paul's climactic ending to 1 Timothy, the faithful church is guarding the truth. The faithful church is guarding the truth. This is very important for us because when we first even considered the White Lane property, I don't know if you remember this, but we said no the first time. But the Lord led us back around and because it's in a very different type of neighborhood than we're currently in, a neighborhood with some challenges and even some problems, some of you asked a very reasonable question, I think a logical question based on the adjustments we'll be making. And that question was, will our focus of ministry change? In other words, will we be doing things differently? Will the, the church's mission have to shift in response to our new location? Will the basic heartbeat and the emphasis of Grace Bible Church have to be altered in response to our locale? Well, I'd like to use this final text in 1 Timothy to answer that question at the very end. But just place that question, will our focus of ministry change? Put that in the vault of your mind for a while and then we'll open that vault in a little while. 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 20, Paul concludes his letter. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. One last time, you recall that Timothy has been sent by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus to stop the false teaching that's happening, to confront elders who are engaged in this, to qualify new elders, to set an example for the church of what true eldership looks like. And as we've said in the past, Timothy had an enviable task ahead of him. And while this letter is written to Timothy, I'd point out again the last word in First Timothy when Paul says, grace be with you. This is a plural pronoun, meaning that while the letter was written at first to Timothy, Paul intends that letter to be read aloud to all the various meetings of the church at Ephesus. And Paul is drawing a line in the sand. False teachers are to be stopped. Unfaithful elders are to be replaced. And the truth of Scripture must prevail once again instead of the selfishly motivated, money-loving, flock-fleecing speculations and arrogant so-called teaching of the influential men who had tainted and poisoned the flavor of truth in the church, leading the church down the path of spiritual destruction. And Paul puts the apostolic stamp of authority on the mission that he's given Timothy, and the mission is, turn the ship around. And in fact, these last two verses we just read serve as a concise and a compact summary of all of 1 Timothy. Chapter 6, verses 20 and 21 is 1 Timothy in a nutshell. It's all the major topics he's talked about. And what is Paul's command which summarizes all of 1 Timothy? Guard the truth. But how do we do this? Well, this morning I'd like to talk to you from these two verses about how we must guard the truth. How we must guard the truth. 
The first way that we must guard the truth is to fulfill the stewardship faithfully. We fulfill the stewardship faithfully. What is a stewardship? It's a responsibility. It's a weighty obligation. It's not a word that we use a lot, but it's a very useful word. It, it means to protect something, to shield something, to safeguard something, specifically something that's valuable that you don't own, that doesn't belong to you. Stewardship is the opposite of ownership. A stewardship is an accountability to the owner of something to guard that the owner owns. A steward is a servant, one who serves another master, a greater master. And this is precisely the idea that Paul is conveying to Timothy to guard the deposit that's entrusted to him. And what is the deposit that's entrusted to Timothy? Something he does not own but is responsible to protect. Verse 21 tells us, the faith. He's to guard the faith. The body of truth which communicates the saving grace of God in Christ and Christ alone. It is to guard the pure and unadulterated word of God. This is exactly what Paul declared of his own ministry in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. He says, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of what? The truth. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The word of God does not belong to men. It is God's. And no man has the right to tamper with it, to alter it, to use it and abuse it for selfish motives as was happening in the church at Ephesus. And remember I said that these last two verses serve as a concise and a compact summary of all of 1 Timothy. So what has Paul said about fulfilling the stewardship faithfully? Turn back with me to 1 Timothy 1. And we're going to just do a flyover to see this theme of fulfilling the stewardship faithfully and it inundates this letter. We'll spend the most of our time on this point. Chapter 1, verse 4, instead of speculations and guesses, Timothy is to stay true to what he calls the stewardship from God that is by faith. There it is, stewardship. It's a Greek word that means management of somebody else's household. You're taking care of somebody else's house. This stewardship of the household of God happens by staying true to the only God-given authority for his household, the scriptures alone. Why is this so important? Why is this so key? Because you are the household of God and no man has the right to care for you in any other way except that God has prescribed. Chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The Old Testament law was given in a, a covenant context for a specific situation, and it's part of a covenant no longer in effect. The new covenant has replaced it. But the law is useful to the believer. How is that? Well, very simply, the law teaches us principles of obedient godliness. The, the law says in Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so the character of God, the holiness of God, the obedience to God, all characterized in the law, so the law is good and it's to be used properly. And in fact, chapter 1, verse 9 says that the law is given not just for the believer, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Why is the law useful to the unbeliever? Because it stops spiritual arrogance and it shows the unbeliever that they can't live up to God's standards. The law graciously leads one to Christ because the law holds up a mirror of the righteousness of God. And as you look in the mirror, you see that you don't measure up. 
In chapter 1, verse 11, we see the concept of stewardship once again. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You notice that the gospel is first and foremost the good news which proclaims the glory of the blessed God. The gospel is not first and foremost about saving men. It's about pointing honor, pointing glory to God. The salvation of men is the benefit, the byproduct. This is important to talk about the gospel of the glory of God. Because the sin for which all mankind bears guilt is the sin of not giving God glory, not ascribing to Him what He is due. And because we're spiritually separated from God, we're, we're unable to give Him glory. But the gospel does something. The gospel opens the way to qualify people as worshipers, to be made pure and holy and able to worship, able to give Him glory. And how reliable, how authoritative is this gospel of God? Chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving the full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The gospel is worthy of full acceptance. There's no deviation. There's no variation. There's no obfuscation. There's no complication to it. This is the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And only He can do it. The church is to have a level of commitment to this truth, to the revelation of God. Here it is, chapter 1, verse 19. We are to be holding faith and a good conscience. The good conscience of not having deviated from the singular source of truth that God has given us. In chapter 2, Paul urges the church to prayer and he gives the aim of these prayers. Chapter 2, verse 3, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. To be saved is to come to the knowledge of the truth. To come to the knowledge of the truth is to be saved. And this is so important. Listen carefully. There is no salvation without truth. Therefore, we guard the truth. In fact, Paul summarizes the sole content of his ministry. You think about this, as brilliant and as educated as Paul was, the sole content is listed in chapter 2, verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What's the sole content? It is the revelation of God in the Bible. That's it. No other source. In fact, one of the ways that Paul said about guarding the truth in Ephesus was to command Timothy that the elders that he qualifies had to have one skill, one ability. Chapter 3, verse 2, and we see all the character qualities. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Here's the skill, able to teach. The elder is to have those character qualities, but that's not enough. He must be astute. He must be qualified in the Scriptures. Why is this so important? Because this is the sole and only way that an elder is to discharge his singular duty. Look with me at the end of verse 5 in chapter 3. What is the duty of the elder? How will he care for God's church? You notice the stewardship? The elder cares for God's church. How does he care for God's church? By being able to teach. But this able to teach qualification in the leader's role In fulfilling the stewardship faithfully, the whole church has a role as well. The whole church has a responsibility as we see it, what is really the 
the spiritual and theological high watermark of the letter. Chapter 3, verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We spent all of 2021 talking about the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. The leaders aren't the pillar and buttress of the truth, although they shepherd toward that. The church, all of you have a responsibility to uphold the truth. How do you do that? Aren't you, aren't you thinking, well, I thought that was the pastor's job. Isn't that why he gets paid the medium-sized bucks? That's what he's here for. He's supposed to guard the truth for us. No, it's all of us. How do you do that? You value the truth. You prioritize the truth. You beware of fads and trends. When a, the latest Christian book is suddenly number one on Amazon, beware of it. Take listening to the truth as holy. Take it as sacred. Take it as consecrated. Take it as hallowed. Take it as revered. It means not treating the, the church as a fellowship and relationship main course with a side of truth. No, the church is the gathered people of God. You're here to hear, to inculcate, to internalize, to believe, to obey the truth. The fellowship and the relationships are just the result of that. Peter said in 1 Peter 2 verse 2, to be like a newborn baby all the time by longing for the milk of the word. Just this yearning for truth. He's commanding you to desire the word and not just in theory, but in practice by being here consistently. And let me just issue a shepherding warning to those of you who have been in Christ for years, maybe even decades. It can be very easy to begin to think, well, I've learned so much over the years and I had some great Bible studies 20 years ago and, and I, had a, I went through this great sermon series a few years ago and this and that and I've really bolstered my faith and to slowly begin to fall off on your own commitment to hearing truth. No. You might say, well, I ate three years ago. I shouldn't eat now. How are you the pillar and buttress of the truth? By eating and drinking and memorizing and hearing and obeying the truth as often as you possibly can. You as a church fulfill the stewardship faithfully by being constant, by being consistent, by being faithful, to be immersed in the truth. And the major part of fulfilling the stewardship is that we heed the application of the word of God. 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. Paul tells Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Put these things, meaning teach the truth, apply the truth, connect doctrine with duty, truth with transformation, and orthodoxy with orthopraxy. Those must connect. What does the Bible say and how do you apply it? In fact, Paul gets even more direct. Chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Here's the simple logic. If the Word of God is innately authoritative because it's inerrant, then this authority extends by default to telling you what to do with your lives, right? And the shepherd merely conveys the commands of Scripture. And when you hear the commands of Scripture, you have two choices. If you're a believer, you obey. If you're not a believer, you rebel. Those are your two options. Speaking of shepherding, 
Paul explains to Timothy that he's to continue in the highest form of worship, which itself fulfills the stewardship faithfully. Chapter 4, verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is the central feature of the gathered people of God. The reading and the explanation and the application of Scripture. And just how important is this to be to the shepherds of God's flock? Chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Persist in it. No coasting. No coasting. And no one is exempt. No one escapes the, the scrutiny of the Word of God. No one here says, you know, I've been a Christian long enough, Steve. Just back off a little bit here. No one. Chapter 5, verse 1. You deal with the older men. You deal with the younger men. You deal with the older women. You deal with the younger women. That all get taught, all get pushed toward Christ-likeness. And someone might ask, and maybe particularly if you're a little bit newer here, but isn't church a place to come and get some nice relationships, to, to hear a basic motivation and inspiration to get me through the next week? Isn't that what we're here for? No. Look at the definition of a faithful leader Paul gives in chapter 5, verse 17. What's the faithful leader doing? Laboring in preaching and teaching. We don't go to the Joel Osteen school of heretical preaching. You don't have to have any preparation. You prepare on your way, saying, I think I'll say something nice with a big old smile. No, we labor. It means sweat. It means effort. It means exertion, diligence, constancy. It means having lots of books open. It means sweating over the Word of God. Why? It's for the sake of the body and to the glory of God. And again, Paul stresses Timothy's role in fulfilling the stewardship. Chapter 6, verse 2, the very, very end of verse 2. In your Bible, it probably looks like the beginning of verse 3. He tells him, teach and urge these things. And as one final trumpet call, one final clarion to fulfill the stewardship faithfully, Paul gives Timothy a solemn and a weighty charge to guard the truth. We looked at just a couple of weeks ago, chapter 6, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We spend a whole message on those verses. So what does this mean for us as those who desire to fulfill the stewardship? Quite simply, it means that we flood the church with the revelation of Scripture. It means that we saturate the church's schedule with Bible. And what that means is that we fill the future, we fill our horizons with truth so that we are effectively guarding the good deposit. Guarding the deposit that's entrusted to us. How must we guard the truth? First, fulfill the stewardship faithfully. There's a second way we must guard the truth. Defend the gospel authoritatively. Defend the gospel authoritatively. The second part of verse 20, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Avoid. It means to turn away from something. In our our language, we would say to dodge it, to, to not let it get near you. He says to dodge this irreverent babble. It literally means empty chatter, talk that has no content, empty words strung together into a pointless direction, saying a whole lot of words without saying anything. 
And why is Paul so adamant about this? I mean, isn't this just a, a friendly difference of theological opinion? No, not at all. The stakes are monumental for the life of the church. Paul uses almost the identical phrase in 2 Timothy 2.16. He says, but avoid irreverent babble. And here's what the stakes are. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. It doesn't keep people neutral. It makes them more wicked. It leads away from godliness and towards sin and wickedness. Only truth leads to godliness. You cannot sanctify the church without truth. What did Jesus say in John 17, 17? Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And he says, avoid contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We get our word antithesis from contradictions. It's opposition, something that's opposite. It's contrary. It's against and this is something falsely called knowledge. What does this mean? This is someone who says, I know something you don't because God told me. This has been the bread and butter of the charismatic movement. Teachers and opponents of the true gospel in Ephesus were claiming secret and superior knowledge. And this so-called secret superior knowledge always has one purpose. It is to control people. And when you control people, then you can gain access to their resources. Remember, we've already seen that in this letter, that those motivated by wealth, giving these weird, new, strange teachings and people throwing money at them for it. Sounds familiar. So what would be the outward reasoning? What what would these wayward leaders be saying? They would be saying something like this. You know, the apostles, like Paul, gave a good foundation, but this is limited. It's just the foundation. And now we have... New advanced teachings. We have new teachers that should be followed into greater knowledge and enlightenment. Because we've heard from God. We've heard the next step. And now, planted in the soil of the church were the seeds of what would be the full-blown movement of Gnosticism in the second century, of higher knowledge. But what they were purveying was not knowledge at all. It was deception. And so Timothy is to avoid it. And he's to make certain that the whole church avoids it. And again, Paul's statement here, to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions labeled as higher knowledge, this is peppered throughout the whole letter. So we're going to take another little trip through 1 Timothy. Turn back to 1 Timothy 1. We have band-aids in the back if anybody gets paper cuts this morning. Paul front loads this concept big time of defending the gospel authoritatively. Chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Different doctrine. This is a specific word that means another of a different kind. Not a similar kind, but a different category, which makes it completely false. Paul isn't talking about innocent, small nuances in theological differences. These are perversions of the true gospel. Things that cannot lead you to heaven, but will certainly lead you to hell. Chapter 1, verse 4. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. This phrase, myths and endless genealogies, is a little bit difficult to interpret, specifically because it's vague. But it definitely has a distinctly Jewish flavor to it. It has a distinctly Old Testament flavor to it. It gives us some clues. 
For example, the most likely option concerning the myths would be made-up stories and legends about Old Testament characters. Traditions not found in the text of Scripture itself, yet these stories would gain more traction than actual Scripture. In fact, there's an actual written example. The Jewish book of Jubilees from the 2nd century B.C. contains numbers of legends about Old Testament characters. And many of those stories came to be believed on the level with inspired scripture. I'll give you an example. Here's here's an example of a myth that some of you may still believe. That Adam and Eve ate an apple in the Garden of Eden. Does the scripture say that? No, but that's what the whole world believes because it's a myth. It just says fruit. The end of chapter 1, verse 6. The false teachers have wandered away into vain discussions. They've wandered away. They were discussing things that were vain. There's no inherent spiritual value, no authority, no power. And the most dangerous part of these vain discussions is that vain discussions always have an impact on the gospel. They tear the gospel to shreds. They water it down. They they divide the gospel into little pieces that are are not useful. Turn ahead to chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, false teachers were putting forward a so-called gospel of asceticism that to be pleasing to God, you abstain from every earthly pleasure possible. That if you were having a horrible time in life, that you probably are saved. That was their gospel. And Paul calls this the teaching of demons. Chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. A more wooden, literal translation of these three words in Greek would be, worldly fables fit only for old women. In fact, this is where we get the phrase old wives' tales. What are old wives' tales? Old wives' tales speak of exaggeration, of boasting, of making things up. Fictitious stories passed off as truth, seemingly awe-inspiring new supposed discoveries about the Bible. And these always cause a distraction away from the gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel. And of course, these irreverent silly myths lend themselves to controversy which is poison in the church. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 4. This sort of teacher is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. What does it produce? Envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, constant friction. Can I tell you something that I believe with all of my heart? There is to be no controversy in the presentation of the gospel. The gospel is not controversial. The gospel is simply what is true. What is controversial is whether you choose to believe it or not. That's the controversy. To choose to believe that you are utterly and completely and totally depraved, that you were lost in your sin and unable to come to God by any merits of your own, much less even have the desire to do so, that it took the regenerating power, the grace of the Holy Spirit through the knowledge of the gospel of Christ in the word of God to open your spiritual eyes to your need for forgiveness. That coming to faith in Christ involves repentance, turning away from your faithful allegiance to your sin and becoming faithfully loyal to Christ. That salvation is purely by the grace of God alone through faith alone and Christ alone is revealed in the scriptures alone to the glory of God alone. Those are not controversial truths. They're just truths. What is controversial is when somebody says, I refuse to believe those things. 
The gospel is that which brings the church together. When the gospel is preached, the church is unified. Amen? So how do we defend the gospel authoritatively? No false or divergent gospel will be tolerated from this pulpit downward. Error will be corrected as strongly as is necessary. And the gospel will be proclaimed each and every time the church is gathered. It will be proclaimed in word. It will be proclaimed in song. It will be proclaimed in prayer. How must we guard the truth? First, fulfill the stewardship faithfully. Second, defend the gospel authoritatively. The third way we guard the truth is warn the arrogant boldly. Warn the arrogant boldly. I am a tender soul at heart. I suppose that's part of being a pastor. And how I would love to always believe that the gathered church is purely a gathering of solely those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and have submitted to the grace, in God, grace of God and salvation. That, that would be wonderful. But Jesus said that would not be the case. That the weeds would grow up with the wheat, as he said. And one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had as a pastor is preaching at funerals and preaching the gospel with as much authority and as much strength and as much power as God will allow. And to see at funerals people who came to pay their respects to a dead person hear the gospel of Christ and get so angry that they storm out these doors. Happens every time. The weeds would grow up with the wheat. And this is part of his plan for the church. But it's a wise plan. It's a very wise plan because as unbelievers, whether they know they're unbelievers or not, when they attend a gathering of the church, the gospel is proclaimed so that they might hear and they might believe. And so the positive side of Jesus' command, His promise rather, the weeds gathering with the wheat, is that oftentimes the weeds get saved and they become wheat. And we live for that, don't we? How many times in the waters of baptism, in our baptism that isn't there anymore, um, how many times have we heard people say, I I came to church and I didn't understand the gospel, but then I, I began to understand and the Lord began to work on my heart and I repented. We live for that. But there is a sad reality. Probably the leadership of the church sees this a little bit more than you might, and that is the reality of spiritual casualties in the church. The longtime church attender who strays or who wanders or who perhaps demonstrates over time even that his faith was never genuine to begin with or gets caught up in one pet issue that becomes obsessed, becomes obsessed with it. And this strain or wandering is often due to what has been taken in falsely called knowledge. And what's the result? Verse 21, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. They've swerved. This is the opposite of taking pains to hit the mark. It is to avoid the truth altogether by minimizing it or adding to it. It's a purposeful swerving. And and once again, Paul's summary statement here encapsulates a major theme in 1 Timothy. Turn back with me to chapter 1. You're getting used to this now. In fact, we see the same word used to swerve all the way at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. And who are they? Verse 7, they're men who desire to be teachers, yet they're as ignorant as a rock about the word of God. What is it that they've swerved from? Swerving from these. 
Verse 5, teaching the people of God from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They've swerved from that. Instead, their motives are selfish and greedy and personal. Paul does not present this problem to Timothy as being solved easily. He doesn't present the problem as, hey, Timothy, just take some of these false teachers out to lunch. Make friends with them. Maybe in a few years they'll figure out what they're doing. No. They're to be warned sternly. Chapter 1, verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. What's Timothy doing? He's at war. He's at war with those who would purvey falsehood. Paul then gives the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander. And what does verse 19 said that they and other leaders like them have done? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it maybe a little bit differently than what you have in your English Bible. They've made shipwreck of the faith. The Greek doesn't make it personal. It's not their faith. They've made shipwreck of the faith. It's that they've made a mockery of the faith. They've altered the truth. Remember, this letter is to be read to all the church, and these two men are set as an example. They're disfellowshipped. They're handed over to Satan. The warning is clear. The warning is severe. In fact, Paul gives a similar warning with Satan at the core in his list of qualifications of new elders. Turn with me to chapter 3, verse 6. It's no accident that Paul ends his qualifications of new elders with two warnings to beware of spiritual deception. Chapter 3, verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is serious business. Don't become a leader if you have any chance of leading people astray. The warning starts with leaders and it progresses downward to the entire assembly. In fact, it doesn't get any more real than this. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. This is as real as it gets. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. This doesn't mean Christians losing their salvation. Jesus Christ promised that he would not lose one who is truly his. It means that the church will have casualties. Those that everyone thought were in Christ. For the last uh, decade or so, we've used Colossians 1.28 as our church's mission statement. We've shortened it a bit to emphasize Christ and sanctification. And plus, it's a lot of words and we put it on walls and things like that. We shortened it to him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But let's be reminded what the full text says. Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. There must be a warning element to the ministry. How must we guard the truth? We fulfill the stewardship faithfully. We defend the gospel authoritatively. We warn the arrogant boldly. There's a fourth way to guard the truth. We glorify the Lord theologically. We glorify the Lord theologically. The idea of giving glory to God in Scripture is associated very heavily with ascribing or attributing or crediting to the Lord that which is true about Himself. It even has the idea of wishing upon the Lord these qualities which already belong to Him. 
Deuteronomy 32.3, ascribe greatness to our God. 1 Chronicles 16.28, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Job 36.3, I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Psalm 29.1, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Now, Paul ends this glorious letter to Timothy with the simple phrase, grace be with you. This is a prayer and a wish for the whole church. But it isn't just a sweet little Christian saying. It isn't just a saying you put at the bottom of your emails. It's not just a generalized hope for well-being. This is a final parting celebration of the unique and the holy and the only grace that comes from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is just a representative of the longer, more extensive version where Paul started. Go back with me if you still have fingers to do this to chapter 1, verse 2. Look at the extended version. The extended version to Timothy, my, chapter 1, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That yes, we are recipients of grace. We are recipients of mercy. We are recipients of peace. But the focus and the priority is Godward. The focus and the priority is heavenly. And once again, for the final time, the last two verses of 1 Timothy point us to key highlights in the entire letter. In 1 Timothy, there are three mountain peaks. Three glorious doxologies, which are exclamations and and proclamations of the glories of God. Three high-altitude vantage points, which elevate the reader above the clouds of the false teachers, above the storms of the difficulties of the word, above the thunder and lightning of the problems in the church. And these three mountain peaks show us that the primary and the loftiest way the church guards the truth is to glorify the Lord theologically. The first mountaintop. Right near the end of chapter 1, Paul has just given testimony of his own salvation by the mercy of God. And he ascribes glory to God. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He describes God as the King. He's first of all the King of the ages. What does that mean? It means that God is the King over every age. He transcends your death. He transcends this age of the earth into the coming age of His reign on earth and extending on into the final age, the age of new heaven and new earth. God is unlike the kings of the earth, which Isaiah 14 says, they go down to the grave and their reigns are ended forever. Unlike them, the King of the ages is transcendent. He's the king through every passing age. Second, he is immortal. Literally means imperishable, incorruptible. Nothing of God ever decays. Nothing of God ever ages. Nothing of God ever changes. He is invisible. God is spirit. He is the invisible God, not bound by any of his creation. And yet he's made himself visible. He's made himself manifest. How has he done this? Oh, beautifully, in Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the king of the ages. He is immortal. He's invisible. And he is the only God. He is the only God. This is the central theme of what God says about himself in the Old Testament, that he is the only God. The Lord our God, he is one. 
243 times in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the one true and living God, asserts his dominance over the false, non-existent gods of men. And this king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God Paul ascribes to him, wishes upon him honor and glory forever and ever. Honor speaks specifically of public acknowledgement of the worth of God. This is why we gather to give him honor publicly. And glory, glory says that God alone is worthy of this public acknowledgement. The public acknowledgement, the glory and the honor of God will go on forever and ever Long, long, long after all who stood against God and Christ are dust and ashes, their souls burning in eternal hell. There's a second mountaintop. And this occurs at the theological center of 1 Timothy near the end of chapter 3. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 16. This doxology is clearly focused on God the Son. Chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is a compact statement of the person of Christ. Listen to all the theology we get. We get six of these. we, We get the incarnation of Christ. He's manifested in the flesh. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, Jesus being manifested in, in the flesh, the incarnation of Christ, that's not just a Christmas verse. That's not just, yeah, Christ came as a baby. Nor is it just a Christ on earth verse. That He, yeah, He did His ministry and He died on the cross and He was raised from the dead. Nor is it just a Christ in heaven verse. Yeah, He is human, fully human in heaven right now. It is eternal because God in the flesh is the bridge between God and those of the flesh. And for all eternity, Jesus Christ is manifested in the flesh that you can literally view God. Not only do we get the incarnation of Christ, we get the resurrection of Christ. He's vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated, it means to be proven right, to be proven authentic. And what was the the most glorious way that Christ was vindicated as the Son of God who paid in full the penalty of the sins of all who would believe? It was His resurrection. That's the ultimate proof. Romans 1.4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Not only the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, we have the authentication of Christ. The authentication of Christ, he is seen by angels. Angels ministered to Christ. They appeared to Christ at special times in his ministry on earth. They appeared at his birth, at his temptation, in his prayerful anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, at his resurrection, at his ascension. That is authentication. How about the proclamation of Christ? He's been proclaimed among the nations. The Great Commission tells us this in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We see the occupation of Christ. The occupation of Christ. He's believed on in the world. Through the church, Christ has been occupying Satan's territory, the world, one believer at a time. In fact, Acts 17, verse 6 says that... uh, some of the apostles were accused by their spiritual enemies and the enemies complained, these men have turned the world upside down. Yeah, that's the occupation of Christ. 
And how about the glorification of Christ? He's taken up in glory. This isn't just referring to the ascension of Christ into heaven, but his current state is now being glorified. Jesus prayed for this in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the authentication of Christ, the proclamation of Christ, the occupation of Christ, the glorification of Christ. Didn't that raise you above the clouds, above the storms, above everything? But we're not done. There's a third mountaintop. It occurs just a few verses before the end of the letter. Turn back to chapter 6. We've had one mountaintop near the beginning, one mountaintop in the middle, and now we get one at the end. We just saw the pinnacle of the letter focus on God the Son. This last mountaintop focuses on the person of God the Father, just like chapter 1, verse 2 said, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now in chapter 6, verse 14, Paul has exhorted Timothy to keep the commandment, speaking of the whole word of God, to keep it unstained, keep it free from reproach, for how long? Until the return of Christ. And now chapter 6, verse 15. The return of Christ, which He, that is God the Father, will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. We spend a whole message on this, but be reminded that God is the blessed one. What does this mean when the term blessed is used in reference to God? It describes his total happiness. It describes his lack of frustration of any kind. God has no anxiety. God has no angst. God has no worry. God has never once wrung his hands, even at you. He's never worried about you. Why? Well, it's very simple. Since he controls everything and he planned everything and he knows the outcome of everything, everything that happens is within his will and it gives him unending delight. God is the only sovereign. Sovereign here literally means ruler. And it speaks of the all-powerful nature of God's rule. His power to rule is intrinsic. He has no rivals at all. He didn't earn it. It, He just is sovereign. Nothing is a threat to him. And you might say, well, Satan is his rival. Yeah, but Satan never stood a chance for one second. He's already been sentenced to hell from the beginning of time. And God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we're familiar with that designation applied to Jesus, Revelation 17, Revelation 19. But this is the intrinsic character of God, that he is the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. A little interesting note here. In the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy 10 and Daniel 2, the term is a little bit different. He is said to be the God of all the gods and the Lord of all the lords. What does that imply? It implies pretty strongly that the king of all the kings means that God is king of all the kings in the spiritual realm and Lord of all the lords in the human realm, that God is king everywhere in that which is visible and that which is invisible. And God alone has immortality, Paul says. This is a specific word that speaks of the deathlessness of God, that God cannot be annihilated. Psalm 36, 9, For with you is the fountain of life, In other words, life emanates from him. God doesn't just give life. God doesn't just experience life. God is life. God dwells in unapproachable light. 
that he's transcendent, he's beyond, he's unlimited, he's unapproachable unless he permits. And no one has ever seen God or can see him. God is an invisible God. His, his separateness makes it impossible to perceive God unless he grants it. No one can talk to God, no one can see God, no one can perceive God, no one can know anything about God unless he decrees it. And again, to him be honor and eternal dominion. This functions like an if-then statement. If God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, then to him belongs honor and dominion. That's the only conclusion you can come to. I want to be really, really clear about this. The glorification of God is not a sentimental event. It's not an emotion that you dredge up. It's not a trite or conditioned response when the music starts. It's not a mindless endeavor. The glorification of God is an endeavor of the mind. It is an endeavor of the will. It is an endeavor of the heart to hear the truth, to believe the truth, to sing the truth, to proclaim the truth, to pray the truth, to meditate on the truth, to be saturated in the truth, to be immersed in the truth, to be obsessed with the truth, to be constant in the truth. And the ultimate, the pinnacle, the top, the high point of guarding the truth. Psalm 29, 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 68, 34, ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Psalm 96, 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Or how about this one, the very next verse, Psalm 96, 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. What does that tell us? The highest event of the gathered church of Jesus Christ is to ascribe glory to God and we do that by guarding the truth. Amen? Dr. John Kitchen concludes his Tremendous study on 1 Timothy with these words. This is worth listening to. He says this, quote, And thus, this great letter concludes. The gospel stands, though its enemies rage. The church goes on, though falsehood finds a home and a voice, even from within its own number. At the center of this battle is a solitary individual called of God to guard the trust of truth delivered in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has sought to encourage, exhort, and strengthen Timothy to be faithful in this high calling. All today who find themselves in the thick of this same battle will find in the words of this ancient but ever-living letter the same grace for this epic struggle of truth and error, life and death, heaven and and hell. I hope this has answered the question for you, but just in case, retrieve the question from the vault of your mind that we asked. We asked you at the beginning when we moved to our White Lane property, will our focus of ministry change? One million times, no. No. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in whom? Christ. In Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious climactic ending to 1 Timothy. We feel like we've made friends with Paul and Timothy in these 
last months. We've seen the struggles that they share. We've seen the, the, even the anxiety over the, the state of the church in Ephesus. And Paul's instruction to Timothy is so instructive to us. We desire as a church to hear the words of our Savior. Well done, good and faithful church. We desire to be faithful and just in these coming weeks, Lord, as we move to a new facility and as we uh, make a little bit more of a splash in the community just by visibility, Lord. Oh God, we ask you that first and foremost, we would be faithful to guard the truth. That we would guard our own hearts. That we would all jump in and we would do the work of the ministry. That we would be disciple disciples and disciple makers. Lord, we pray for the various ministries that may be challenged by the coming days. We pray for our children's ministry, Lord, that you would provide for them and that the children would hear the gospel continually every week and that every one of them would enter into the waters of baptism in the years to come. We pray, Lord, for our security team, Lord, as we're in a a different neighborhood we're not exactly used to and we pray that you would bolster them and strengthen them. We pray for all of the shepherds in our church, Lord. We pray that you would give them courage and stamina and strength to shepherd this growing flock of God. We pray, Lord, for the men's ministry and the women's ministry that they would just become more and more effective. But most of all, Lord, we pray to be faithful to proclaim Christ. That Christ would always be at the center. That the gospel would always be pure in this local assembly that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone as revealed in the scriptures alone to the glory of God alone may that be our legacy in the coming days weeks months and years until Christ returns we pray in his name amen